How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. I'd like to introduce you to one of our newest partners, Hoist. Hoist is unlike other hydration drinks because of the way it works in your body. It replenishes your body immediately and is clinically proven to keep you hydrated longer than water. I started drinking Hoist after my workouts because it tastes better and is better for us than other sports drinks. Hoist isn't full of high fructose corn syrup or artificial preservatives, sweeteners, or dyes. They have six delicious flavors, three times the electrolytes, and half the amount of sugar of traditional sports drinks. If you want to give it a go, I encourage you to head over to drinkhoist.com and use code GREENNOTEBOOK15 at checkout for a special 15% discount for From the Green Notebook listeners. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Kyle Sheely. Kyle is the author of How to Host a Viking Funeral, The Case for Burning Your Regrets, Chasing Your Crazy Ideas, and Becoming the Person You're Meant to Be. In this episode, we talk about one of Kyle's craziest and most impactful projects. He built a 30-foot Viking ship out of cardboard and then asked people to send him their regrets. Why? So he could host a Viking funeral and burn all of it to the crown. He wanted people to finally be free of the internal burdens they carried. And he received over 21,000 regrets from all over the world. So in this episode, we discuss the different types of regrets people carry and how to make those regrets a little less heavy in our own lives. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right into this interview. I had a lot of fun, and I learned a lot from Kyle. So please welcome to the show, Kyle Sheely. Oh, happy to be here, man. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing great, Kyle. Before um, we get into kind of the, the heart of the book, I want you to, I'm just going to throw out some random words, and, and you just tell me what comes to mind. Viking ship fire. <laughs> the book comes to mind. <laughs> uh, years of, of hard work and, and ups and downs. And yeah, man, there's a lot. There's a lot tied into those words. Well, let's talk about it. So where, where did you get the idea in the first place of lighting a Viking ship on fire? 
I mean, the whole thing started as a joke. I feel like that's going to be probably on my tombstone. Like this whole thing started as a joke. That's a recurring theme in my life where something will start as a joke and then I'll kind of take it too far and then it becomes something much bigger. And so I'm about to turn 36 this week. So this was about six years ago. I turned 30. And in the lead up to that, I was just talking to my mom and talking to my wife and different friends. And they were asking like, hey, what are you going to do for your birthday? And my parents have some land out in the country. And, and my mom was like, oh, you can you should have a bonfire and invite some people out here. And uh, I sort of as a joke was just like, oh, no, I'm not going to have a party to celebrate turning 30. I'm going to have a funeral to mourn the death of my 20s. And my mom was like, oh, that's weird. Like <laughs> kind of creepy, Kyle. Like, what are you going to have a little coffin and people put their gifts in the coffin and stuff? And I was like, no, I'm not going to have a, a regular funeral. I'm going to have a Viking funeral. And it was a joke. I, was, I thought, oh, I'll build a little Viking ship out of cardboard and hot glue. And I'll put some letters and numbers in it that say my 20s. And then I'll set it on fire with some friends on my birthday. And uh, once I started building it, I thought, well, how big can I make this thing? And it ended up based on the constraints of the cardboard that I could get. I was like, oh, I can make this thing about eight feet tall and 16 feet long. So like roughly the size of a minivan. And so I built this ship and I, I mean, I spent a couple of weeks, like it was really detailed and, and very ornate and stuff. And I feel like I always have to say that on a podcast because when you, people hear cardboard art, they always generally assume that it's terrible, but I worked really hard on it and made this beautiful ship. And then I set it on fire and I kind of thought that would be the end of it. But some friends of mine made a, a, a video about it and they interviewed me for that video. And they probably interviewed me for like half an hour. And then they pulled out the like two minutes of good stuff that I said during that time. But I said something in that video about letting go of the past to make room for the future and how, you know, because they had asked me, are you going to be, are you going to be bummed out to burn this thing after you work so hard on it? I said, no, you kind of got to, I got to make room for new things. And that idea seemed to resonate with people. And so I started getting all these emails back from people that I'd never met as that video kind of went out and spread around the internet. And they all sort of followed this same template where they would say like, Hey Kyle, I saw your weird birthday thing and it inspired me in some way. You know, I just, it inspired me to let go of some stuff in my life. And then they would always kind of say at the end, like, PS, I just wish I could have let go of my stuff with the Viking funeral like you did. So I got one of these emails and I was like, oh, that was really nice. And then I got two of these emails and I was like, oh, that's interesting. They said the same thing as the other guy. And then they just like kept coming. And like months later, I was still getting the emails. And like a year later, I'm still getting emails from people who have seen this Viking ship thing. And I thought, oh, this is kind of struck a nerve for people. And so they all kind of said, hey, I wish I had a Viking funeral for my regrets. And so I thought, okay, well, I can help with that part. So I decided I would do one more Viking funeral. And I asked people to just write down whatever they wanted to let go of from their past, like a regret, a mistake, a belief, um, an identity, like what, something that they were like, hey, you know what, this used to be me, but that's not me anymore. Um, send that to me and I'll build a, another Viking ship and set it on fire. And that was kind of the, the beginning of this two and a half year long journey. So for the for the second Viking ship, which was obviously way bigger than the yeah the, the second one was way bigger. It was uh, that one was sixteen feet tall and thirty feet long, um, which I mean it was a, it was big enough that the first Viking ship, the minivan sized one, could have fit comfortably inside of the second Viking ship. Yeah, I love the fact that we're only like five minutes into this podcast and we've both said Viking ship, probably like a total. <laughs> you talk of- about two different Viking ships, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's all, that's awesome. I never thought I'd be here in my life. Um, when, when you got the second one, was that when you had the conversation with your wife about? Yeah, the first Viking ship, I had talked to my mom about this idea. And then I went inside and talked to my wife about it. And my wife, uh, you know, in the book, I, I say when I brought this up, 
she kind of looked at me, you know, warily and, and it, this was not her first Kyle presents an idea rodeo. And so I, I was like, Hey, I, I brought her a glass of wine. I'm like, Hey, I want to talk to you about something. <laughs> and, and, uh, she could immediately tell I was up to something. And so I, I, you know, mentioned the idea. I was like, Hey, I want to have this, my birthday's coming up. I was thinking about building a Viking ship. And, and she was like, why are you telling me this? And I was like, well, cause it's going to take a lot of time and it'll take some money. And, and, you know, I'll probably have to like mainly focus on this for the next couple of weeks. And, and I was like, you know, I want you on board for that. And she kind of laughed and said, oh, that's really adorable that you think that that's true. But I, I've known you long enough to know when you get this kind of an idea. And I was like, well, what do you mean? What kind of an idea? And she was like, this is an idea that you're going to do no matter what. She's like, I can just tell already. And I was like, no, like I was kind of like taken aback by that. I was like, no, like I, I am a team player here. Like if you don't want me to do this, I won't do it. She was like, I love that you think that that's true, but I know that it's not true. She's like, I know that if I say no, what you'll really do is keep kind of bringing it up. Just like you'll think it's subtle, but it won't be until I kind of give in. And so she was like, but that's, you know, I give you my blessing. And so I was like, okay. So that was, that was sort of the, uh, the book opens with that story. I love that. And actually it was funny. My, my parents came and stayed with us like a week ago and uh, your book was sitting out and my mom just picked it up and just started reading it. And she came across that and she was like, I wonder how many times you and Amanda have this same exact conversation. <laughs> and uh, I was like, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny to me. I mean, I talk about this in the book, but like how many things in life it take, I feel like this is true in my life, at least that life is like that game where you have name of a famous person written on a card and you hold it up to your head and you can't see what it says. And you're trying to figure it out based on what, how other people are reacting to you. And you can ask questions of them. And like, you, you know, your card says Abraham Lincoln and you're having to ask like, am I tall? Am I short? Do I have a beard? And like, I feel like that's what life feels like to me is that things that are so obvious about me to everyone else, it takes me forever to realize that about myself. And, you know, my wife and my mom and like anyone who spent time around me probably has that exact same view of like, oh yeah, I can tell when Kyle gets an idea to said, but I don't, I don't feel like that on my own. Like that's, that's something that had to be pointed out to me. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that that's really fascinating. I'm the same way, man. And I feel like you and I could have a whole conversation about this and totally skip the book, which is, uh, again, it, it's fascinating. Going back to the book itself and to this project you did, you asked people to, to send regrets and you got a flood of them, right? Yeah, I was hoping that I would get, I thought, man, if I could get 10,000 regrets, that would be really cool. And, uh, and in the end, I got 21,000, I think it was 21,086 or something. It was just over 21,000 regrets from people like all over the world. I think they were in three or four different languages. And they were all sent in anonymously. Most of them were sent in anonymously, but uh, some of them had enough context or people would email me later and tell me like, oh, I, I got my whole soccer team together and did this, or I got my whole dormitory floor to do this, or I got my whole Alcoholics Anonymous group. And so we really had like a wide range of age and gender and socioeconomic status and race and like anything that you could think of was represented in this giant pile of regrets. And what did you, what did you learn generally about, about regrets? Man, I learned all sorts of stuff about regrets. I, I learned that one thing that I know that, that you wanted to talk about was this idea of no regrets. Like, cause I had, there were some people, most of the people participated in this, like on their own, like voluntarily, but sometimes like a school would say, Hey, we're all going to do this together or a group would do it. And there would be people inside of that group 
that decided they didn't want to do it. And so I would, I would get occasional cards that would just say like, I don't have any regrets or no regrets. And I even got a few, a few of them that said no regrets. Uh, and they'd spelled regrets wrong, which I, I found hilarious. And I thought about that and, and I've talked to some people about this idea of no regrets. And the thing that kind of stuck out to me was it's an interesting idea in theory, like, oh, you should live with your life with no regrets, but it's, it's just not possible unless you're one of two types of people, either you're a perfect person and we don't get very many of those, no. uh, or you are uh, a delusional person. And so, the, you know, you sometimes meet people who say, I have no regrets and you go, you, like, you've known that person for five minutes and you're like, I can think of some things that you probably should regret, but they kind of have decided like, no, I'm not, there, there's no introspection. There's no like self-examination of like, Hey, how have I impacted the world or made it a, a better or worse place? And so like, you're just barreling forward. So if you're, if you're at all trying to become a better person, I think that you should have some things not that you dwell on every day or that, or that take over your life, but that you look at and if you're honest, you go, I would do that differently if I could do that again, or I would, I would have not done this thing, or I would have changed the way that I do that. And, and so the point of regrets isn't to, to live with that forever or, or to like carry that around, but it's in, in the same way that athletes look at game tape and go, oh, next time I encounter that situation, I should do it better. That's why I think regrets are important to think about and, and why sort of like the examined life is, is a good idea. Because if you hurt someone in the past, you go, man, I wish I would have done that differently. Well, you're going to do that again. You're going to encounter that some sort of situation like that in the future. And so having thought that through, having felt that that pain of regret should help you and motivate you to go, okay, next time I do that, I want to be more careful with the way that I interact with other people, the way that I tread on someone's feelings, the way that I you know, bulldoze through someone else's belief system. Like All of that stuff comes out of the temporary pain of, of regret. It's funny because, you know, you, you had it written in the different texts or different fonts, but like no regrets. Yeah. And usually no regrets is something I say right before I do something that I'm going <laughs> to regret. Like, yeah, it never fails. Like, that's a good key indicator for me that like I'm about to do something stupid because I said that out loud. <laughs> yeah. And what I really appreciate, you talk about the exam in life, is that, you know, one of the practices that I've picked up over the years, which I never did when I was younger, this is like a a two-year-old practice, actually it's like a year and a half now, but is uh, the daily daily journaling yeah. and writing stuff down every day and doing exactly what you're talking about, kind of doing those AARs to myself about how an interaction went, like where a relationship went wrong, where I made assumptions about people, whatever. And like you said, not to dwell on it and beat myself up about it and just live in a state of anxiety, but to actually try to make some progress towards getting better at it. Yeah. Oh, totally. I'm, I'm a big fan of a, a version of that, which is called Morning Pages from Julia Cameron. She wrote a book called The Artist's Way. And it's funny because The Artist's Way is like, it is this wildly popular book with artists. But like the main thing in that book is about doing morning pages. And morning pages are, are just handwritten. It's, she tells you to do three pages handwritten every morning. And people adapt it in, in different ways, but it's really, there's no constraints other than that, um, other than write it by hand. So you can't be distracted by, you know, whatever little browser tab things are, are popping up and then like write longhand for, for two or three pages. And it really is a matter of just kind of like, you end up being surprised sometimes by what just kind of comes out onto the page. And you're like, Oh, I didn't even realize that I was thinking about that. Or like of all the things that I could write, why did, why did my mind go to this? And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's another thing where you're, you're just trying to get some clues about who you are and, and how you can do better and, and what your place is in the world. And, 
yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I, my morning pages journal is on the other side of this computer right now. <laughs> uh, I will be doing it right after this. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I do. I do a nightly one, like right before I go to bed, kind of a yeah. a daily AAR. And then the other thing I do is uh, I call it the Sunday email. I take a book quote. Matter of fact, I used yours, like something I pulled from yours like a couple weeks ago. And then I just think about it all week. And I didn't realize it when I was doing them at first, but I realized I'm basically just writing emails to myself and then sending it yeah. out to like thousands of people yeah. every Sunday. But that's exactly what I'm doing is I'm, I'm thinking about like one of your quotes and then just kind of like working through it in my mind is like, why did, why did I pick out this quote in the first place? Yeah. And then in the process, I, I get clarity just by writing stuff out. And it's really like public journaling that I've realized like th- that I've been doing. And I've learned so much about myself in that process. Yeah. And, and I think doing that in public is such an interesting exercise because it, it probably feels incredibly vulnerable to do that. And you're, and you're kind of, you're discovering things about yourself as you're bearing that to the world. But I find that that's really, I admire that. I think that there's some bravery in that. And I read something one time, I was like on Twitter or something. It was this art author saying that like all of the things that they've, uh, that they've ever done that got the most positive reviews from from people, all of the writing that they'd ever done. It was all the stuff they were most afraid to publish because they thought, oh, this this is me bearing some part of myself that either it's some dark thing that I don't want to admit to, or it's something that that I feel like is going to get judgment or whatever. And what they found was that people came back and they were actually like, oh, I identify with that too, or I have that too. And um, I just did an interview yesterday and it was uh, with this this group of women and one of them was an artist and she was talking about how in the book, I talk about this, this fact that I've really struggled with the term artist for a long time. And, and I didn't feel like that applied to me. And she said, man, hearing you say that and seeing your work. And she, she said, I look at your work and I go, of course, that guy's an artist. And she's like, so hearing you say that made me feel like, okay, oh, it's okay that I struggle with imposter syndrome. It's okay that I don't always identify as an artist too. And so I think that, I think that that's really cool. Like sometimes showing the parts of yourself that feel vulnerable and feels like you should protect those things. Sometimes uh, sharing those with, with other people can, can be really healing for yourself and for those, those people as well. Yeah. And it was actually, Kyle, that part of the book, I remember hearing it. I do, I had it on audible and I also had the book on, I had a hard copy book. So I'd, I listened to you talk on audible and then I'd go back and uh, highlight and like mark in the, in the physical book. But uh, it was uh, the Austin Cleon's website. The noun and the verb was an actual post yeah. that you talked about in that. And so I like looked it up right afterwards. And he said, let go of the thing that you're trying to be the noun and focus on the actual work you need to be doing, the verb. Yeah. And so now, like even in my family, like we've kind of adopted it. Like do the verb. Don't worry about the noun. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and to flesh that out for people, like what he's talking about is don't worry about being a writer. Don't worry about writing. Like if you write, you are a writer. If you, if you make art, you are an artist. If you bake, you are a baker. And anything really beyond that becomes kind of this trap of like, you're trying to wrap your identity around something else. And what you'll end up doing if you do that is you'll just keep moving the, the goalposts. And there's like a saying of like, oh, if you bake one cake, it doesn't make you a baker. But if you commit one crime, it makes you a criminal, like something like that. But it's like, no, if you bake one cake, it does make you a baker. It doesn't make you a professional baker. It doesn't make you a, a you know, world-class baker. But there's not a definition of those things. That's all just based on opinion. And so if you're like, well, I'm going to try to get like consensus, I'm going to try to get everyone else to believe that I'm a baker. You'll never hit that. You'll never, because that milestone will just keep moving. You'll go, well, I'm not as good as whoever, this, this other person who's better than I am. So I can't 
adopt that title. And I think there's something really freeing about just saying like, no, I, I did this thing. And so I am this thing that can be, yeah, it just kind of helps you let go of all of that. Yeah. It really resonated with me too, because I found a lot of times some people, they'll get the idea of like, they just want to be the noun, but they'll never actually get to the verb. So like, for an example, I, I had a buddy that was like, I'm going to get into fitness. And so he spent weeks like researching fitness equipment, buying, fi- like figuring out what he needed looking at the exercise, looking at the diet he needed. And then like, you know, asking people like, Hey, how, when you do a workout, like, what do you do? And then he like worked out like two days with sore and was like, that sucked. Like, I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Bought the t-shirt. Yeah. With the, with the thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, the gold's gym shirt or whatever. It's, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, that's a really, man, that's a trap that I don't know if this is an ADHD thing or a millennial thing or just me, but like, it's so easy for me to get sucked into that. Like I can live in this whole fantasy world in my head. Like I can see a thing, whatever it is, whatever the entry level into a hobby is, I can encounter that at a garage sale or at a store and immediately like see in my mind the next five years of me getting into that hobby (laughs) and like without having ever done it, like without having done a single thing. And it's, oh man, I can totally, I totally empathize with that because I can do that. Like it's easy for me to go like, Oh, but before I, before I can really start baking, I really need to get this professional grade pan. I need to make sure I have the (laughs) highest grade of flour, you know, whatever the thing is, you can do that in every area. And so, man, it's, you see that in a lot of people's lives when you go, Oh, this person has a trail of hobbies that they've started and never really stuck with. And really their hobby is beginning hobbies, which is, it's a whole other thing, but yeah, it's, it's, I think that letting go of, of that identity stuff where you're like, oh, I need other people to validate that I am this thing because you'll never get that. You'll never, even if you do get it, you go, oh, well, my wife says that. You'll go, well, she's my wife. She has to say that about me. Or, or all your friends say that you are this thing. You'll go, well, they like me. Like, you're going to look for all the reasons that you're not that thing. And, and it, it keeps you one from like accepting that, but also like, that's all energy you're spending, not doing the thing you're not writing, you're not paying yeah. rent, whatever, because you're trying to get validation before you do that. Oh, uh, I, I love that. And there's a, uh, one of my favorite authors and he's become like a very close mentor, like almost like a, a father figure in writing is Stephen Pressfield. And Steve has this, he wrote in this book, do the work. He said, we can always revise and revisit once we've acted but we accomplish nothing until we act. Yeah. And so what I realized was like, for me, you know, I started the blog nine years ago. I still wouldn't call myself a writer. I just love to write. Yeah. And so like, I just keep doing it. And then eventually maybe, you know, sometime down the road when I'm like Steve's age, I'll call myself a writer. But yeah, like it's, it's just fascinating. And I, and I, even with the, my, my son now, he's 11, he's just getting into sports and he'll like miss a pass and be like, dad, you know, he'll get so angry with himself. He's like, I can't miss passes. I'm an athlete. I'm like, stop, <laughs> dude. You're not. We're just, we're playing catch, man. Like focus on the verb. The writer thing is really cool because the thing that's really interesting is like, I admire that you don't get hung up on the title and you're like, oh, I don't really care about the title. I'm just going to keep writing because I would from the outside be like, well, obviously you're a writer if you've been writing a blog for nine years, but it doesn't really matter because you're doing the thing anyways. And I think it's easy to get hung up on like, oh, am I this thing or am I not this thing? And then you're not doing the work, but you're just out there doing it. And over time, you're getting better, even without trying, just doing a thing a bunch of times will inherently make you better at that thing. And I I read a quote yesterday, and I can't remember who it was from, but it was a, a famous writer. And they were saying like, this is probably hyperbole, but they were like 900 drafts in on a story. The story is better. Whoever wrote that story is better than I am. Because it's like, when I first wrote it, I didn't have the capacity to make it as good as it was 
all those drafts later. And so it, it kind of becomes greater than the sum of its parts because you've just continually improved it over time. And yeah, there's something to be said for just getting out there and, and doing the thing and trying. I had a mentor that used to say, it's hard to steer a, a parked car. Oh, I love that. You've got to be moving and then, then the car will steer. But you know, you can spend all the time trying to tug the wheel one way or another, but it doesn't really matter if the car is, is stationary. Yeah, yeah. And I see like, this is like the 65th, 66th episode of the podcast. I don't consider myself a podcaster. Otherwise, I would have stuck to the uh, the outline I gave you. But like, <laughs> but I, I think like one of the things too is that, I don't know about you, but when I first started doing this, and even now I find myself getting the trap, like I want to jump on Twitter and be like, hey, everybody, I'm writing today. Or like, <laughs> yeah. I'm having profound thoughts. But to me, like that's just signaling. That's like noun stuff when you really just, you got to get back on the verb stuff, but the noun stuff is so awesome. Cause like you said, you get the outside validation, you get all that stuff, but it's just, it's like noise. Yeah. It's actually keeping you away from becoming the thing. Yeah. And I, I heard, and I don't, I don't have the data on this, but I heard one time there's like a study that shows that you shouldn't tell people about your goals because telling people about your goals activates the same reward system in your brain as like accomplishing the goal. Yes. And so if you go like, oh, I'm going to go on a diet or I'm going to go to the gym, like your brain goes like, good for you. Like, and it gives you this dopamine and then you don't actually have to go do the thing. And so that's why you see people that are like, their identity is being an artist, but they don't necessarily make any art or their identity is being a writer, but they're not writing because they get the same dopamine from telling people I'm a writer or for sort of like cosplaying as whatever the thing is. And so, yeah, it's, there's, I don't know. There's something really admirable about just like kind of quietly doing the work behind the scenes and not to say don't self-promote, not to say don't tell people about it, but like understanding when the time is to do that. And it's, it's after you've done the work, like when you've put in the work, yeah, then go talk about it, but don't tell people like, Oh, I'm going to go do this thing today. Or, or like, look at me. I'm, I am this, I am this now. Like just, yeah, just go do the verb. I'm going to write about that. Like professional cosplay. Yeah, It's something that like people do all the time. Um, because of those dopamine hits. So I'm going to steal that. Listeners, if you see Kyle Sheely write about it, he that for me. <laughs> hey folks, it's Joe here. And I would like to thank my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you were looking for an education, this is the place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash army one and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now back to the episode. So getting back on the outline like 30 minutes ago, you identified five regrets, not four that some other no-name author uh, <laughs> identified when you went through yeah. the 21,000 sets of regrets. And, and so what were those five? So there's five sort of categories that broadly speaking, almost every regret 
you know, there were some regrets where people would say no regrets or, you know, or, or no regrets. And there were other regrets that, that I just, I couldn't figure out what this person was saying because I lacked the context. But if I was able to understand what the regret was, almost universally, they fell into one of five categories. And those categories were beliefs, relationships, identities, experiences, and fears. That was surprising to me that there were only five, you know, five types of regrets from 21,000 different regrets that were sent in. And they were so varied, like the things that people would send in, sometimes someone would write one or two words. And then sometimes a person would, would just like a wall of text, their entire life story. And regardless of all of that, they still fell into one of those five categories. What was like one of your biggest revelations when you look in the experience category? Well, experiences, I think when people tend to think about regrets, that's what they think about is like, oh, I did this thing. Experiences would be either something you did or didn't do or something that happened to you or didn't happen to you. And that's what people like tend to think of. It's like, oh, I, I said this thing, I took this action or I didn't do this thing and I regret that. You know, I either I made a fool of myself in front of this person or I didn't ask the girl out or I didn't pursue this hobby. And, and so it's interesting because a lot of times those things are things that you can't, you can go back and undo like an action that you did as long as it wasn't irreparable, as long as it wasn't something like, oh, I, you murdered a person or you, or you did something awful to this person. But what I found was that a lot of the things that fell into the experience category were actually things of inaction or, or indecision where someone says, in this moment, I should have done this and I didn't, or I wanted to do this, but I, I, I kind of played it safe. And those are things that oftentimes you can't go back and do because that moment has passed. And so like, you know, if you regret, oh, I hit a baseball through a window, well, you can pay to fix the window. But if you regret, man, in this moment, when my friend was being vulnerable to me, I didn't reciprocate that or I didn't, I, I made a joke or something like, man, that moment has passed now. And sometimes those are the regrets that really seem to, to weigh on people and stick with them is like, it, because it's it's this unanswered, like, what if? What if I would have done that? What would have happened? Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that, that uh, you point out, too, is that as you looked at the different experiences, is as one of the dangers of only seeing, like, one side of a person's life. Yeah. So one of the things that was really fascinating to me was just that, you know, I mentioned that these these regrets were anonymous, but sometimes... I would go to like an event because I'm a speaker and I would go speak at an event and then people would bring cards and submit them to me. And so sometimes I would get like a little bit of context because about who this person was. And there were just like certain things that you'd go, oh, I would not have expected this person to be carrying that thing. And that has, that's been true over the course of my life. Like I've, I've seen that over and over and over again, where I will hear one part of a person's story or I will see the way they present themselves in public and be like, that person is. X, Y, Z. And like, I will make a judgment about that person for good or for bad. And then oftentimes later find out, oh, I didn't know this about them. I didn't know this about them. I didn't know this about them. Realizing that like you only see one tiny sliver of a person's life and maybe you get some, some things that they don't want you to see, but mostly it's like, they're trying to put up, Hey, Hey, this is what I would like you to know about me. This is the presentation. I mean, I chose like, as a practical example, this is not the way that my desk faces my desk faces that wall over there, but this is a nicer looking background for zoom. And so when I'm doing zoom calls, I'm sitting, I'm on the side of my desk right now. And so many of us do that where we put up a facade and we're like, this is the life that I want you to see. And you don't realize like, Oh, this person also has all of these other problems and struggles. And so I tell the story in the book, but there was a, there was a guy in my, in my high school that was just like, 
a total jerk to me the entire time I was there. And I didn't understand it because like he was popular. He had a girlfriend. He was good at sports, which I call the high school triple crown. If you have all those things in high school, like you're doing pretty well. And I had none of those things. And he like seemed to go out of his way to like make my life hard. And years later, I was probably six or eight years out of high school. And I, I was talking to another person I'd gone to school with and that guy's name came up and I said, yeah, man, I don't know what I ever did to that guy. Like, I don't know what his problem was, uh, but he just like went out of his way to be a jerk to me. And I said something like, I don't know why he was that way. And this guy had known that, uh, that guy, like they had grown up as neighbors and he had known him his whole life. And he goes, oh, I know why he's that way. Like, it was just the most obvious thing in the world to me and I, or to him. And I said, why? And he, he just starts going, well, his mom was the most unloving woman I've ever met in my life. He's like, I was over at his house all the time, even as little kids. He's like, I never once saw his mom give him a hug or touch him or like say she loved him. And his dad was an alcoholic. And he just starts going through all these things. And like, I was like, oh, I didn't know any of that stuff. Like, and what I saw was this kid came to school. He always had money. He always had nice stuff. He had a a nice car. And then what I later learned was like, oh yeah, he had all that stuff because his dad was like spiraling and during those years and was using money. That was like the one thing that he did have to try to make up for like a lack of relationship or a lack of like stability. And once I learned that whole story, then I was exactly like the guy who was telling it to me. I was like, oh, that's why he's that way. And I also realized that if I had had all of those things happen, I would probably be that way too. And so, um, yeah, sometimes having just a little bit of understanding about another person can go a long way. And it can also, it can give you empathy and understanding. It can also make you go like, man, how do I remove those kind of factors from my life and from the lives of my friends and my children and society? Like, how can I build a world where those kind of people are not the natural results? Because that is the natural result of being in that home is turning into that person. Unless you are an extremely strong person or have, have other influences that come in, like, yeah, like it makes sense that he would be that way. So how do I, how do I help the world to become a place where that isn't the result? You know, as, as I was reading that or actually listening to you in the car, I thought back to, you know, when I was, again, just getting started, just getting blogging, there was a guy named Mark Jacobson who eventually got him on the podcast. But I looked up to this guy because he was started like a nonprofit delivering medical supplies to refugee camps in Syria. He's an amazing writer. He's doing all this stuff. And I'm like, man, like, I, I so want to be this guy. If he can do it, I can do it. And I'm just going to do all the things that Mark's doing. And I got him on the podcast. One of the things that came out, like it all failed. Like he had a complete breakdown, like his body, like, like all this other bad stuff happened that I never saw. Yeah. And, you know, I learned through that and through multiple life experiences, there's like a danger in trying to be somebody else or comparing yourself to somebody else. Yeah. Aside from the whole empathy thing that, that comes from that too. Yeah. There's that saying, like, never meet your heroes. And the, the implication is like, you're going to be disappointed. But I think that if you can, if you can manage that disappointment, like meeting your heroes can actually be really, it, it can be a good thing because you go, oh, that's just a person. That's just a human being. And like, they're not different than I am. They're not inherently better than I, like, they also, like you said, like, oh, I saw this side of that person's life. But in reality, they had all this other stuff going on behind the scenes. And so sometimes like, just knowing that can be can be really helpful. Like I'm a I'm a speaker, so I travel around and I speak at at high schools and I do assemblies, I do leadership conferences, and I speak to corporations. And when I first got started, actually before I had gotten started, I was looking for someone to mentor me. And this guy took me to lunch and we were talking and and he said, um, 
He's like, well, I'm, I might mentor you. He said, but what kind of business do you want to build? And I was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I want to you know, travel and speak and impact people. And he said, well, how many times do you want to speak? And I hadn't thought about that at all. I, he's like, how many events a year do you want to do? What kind of events do you want to do? How much do you want to charge? He's kind of grilling me on it. And I was like, man, I don't even know anything about this. And he said, well, here's why I'm asking this because he's like, you could do 50 to 60 events a year. And he's like, you'll, you'll make great money. You'll be financially secure. You'll make a big impact and you'll be home a lot. And he's like, or you can do a hundred events a year or 150 events a year. And he's like, every single person I know who does that is divorced. He's like, their kids don't know them. You know, like they, they have no community back at home. And he goes, I'm just not interested in helping you do that. Wow. He's like, I don't want to ruin your family so that you can, you know, go be this big person on stage or whatever. And I was like, oh, wow. That was like a really interesting conversation to have before that was even on the table for me. And I just watched that play out over the years that like people that, that I would see like, oh my gosh, this guy is killing it. And it was like, there was always a price to be paid on the other side of that. And so, yeah, I mean, sometimes you look at a person, you're like, their life is incredible. And you don't see like, well, what is setting them up for that? Or what are they buying on credit? You know, what are they like, oh, the bill is going to come due for this later. And maybe it's in their relationships, maybe it's in their health, maybe it's in all of those things. But yeah, I think that's an important lesson to be learned. Yeah, I love for me, like I love reading. Like I, I you know, I'm constantly reading books. The books I like to read are memoirs. I mean not memoirs, I'm sorry, biographies. Yeah. Because you get to see like the like a really good biography, you get to see the entire picture of somebody's life. So like yeah. for example, in the military, we celebrate Ulysses S. Grant, you know, as as the victor of the Civil War. But then when you read about his life, like he struggled with alcoholism, not the kind where you like drink every day. But the kind where like, if you go to a party and everyone else is having three beers, you have 10 and make a, you know, make a fool out of yourself. Yeah. Like that was his, that was his Achilles heel. He couldn't stop. And so like, you see, you know, you see a guy like that struggle. And then also, you know, after he became president of the United States, he ended up broke and basically had a GoFundMe to help get him out of debt. And his, like one of his closest friends said, he wanted to hang out with millionaires who would have given all their wealth just to win one of his battles. Yeah. And so I love reading biographies because you get to see somebody's entire life. And like you said, you know, you see these speakers who are drawing these huge crowds constantly on the road. But in order to get that, you got to get the other stuff too. Yeah. Which is the the rough personal life, you know? And I think that studying biographies and, and memoirs too, like learning from other people, if you do it right, it's a shortcut to learn that lesson because he, you know, it took Ulysses S. Grant his entire life and, and it probably, he never learned the lesson. Other people learned it about him and saw that. But what you can take away from that is going like, oh, like it, you start noticing patterns when you read a, a bunch of these books and you go, oh, this person, they got these things that I want to get and it wasn't enough for them. So maybe like, maybe enough has to come in from inside. Maybe like you have to decide that like, oh, you know what? I'm content. Like you can learn that lesson without having to ruin your entire life or, or, you know, get to, get to be 80 or 90 and go, man, I wish I would have done things differently. Yeah. And I think some of that too is, is kind of chasing that outside, that external validation, which is something that I wrestle with. And you actually talk about it in the book, because like one of the things that you found really fascinating looking at all these regrets is, is how we choose which opinions we think are important to us. Yeah. I mean, one of the regrets that came up over and over and over again was people saying like, I want to stop caring what other people think about me. 
And it was interesting because when you give someone a prompt and you say, you send in, like answer this prompt, what's the thing that you regret or what's the thing you want to let go of? Sometimes you disagree with the things that they send in. And sometimes when people would send that one and they go, I want to stop caring what people think about me, I, I would go, I know what you mean, but what you're saying right now is that you want to be a sociopath. Like, because a sociopath, that's <laughs> yeah. like the definition is like, I don't care about what other people think. Like social norms don't matter to me. What they really, I, I hope what they meant was, was more like, I want to stop caring what only the worst people think about me. And so many of us let that live in our head of like, oh, what's the worst possible opinion that a person could have? And how do I make sure that like, you know, I mitigate that with my actions and stuff. And I talk about in the book, like, it's not good to not care what people think about you. There's also a couple other ways you can go wrong. If you only care what, there's some people who will, no matter what you do, they're always going to support you. Like, you know, my mom, I could go stab a man to death in the street and she would be like, you know what? We all have bad days. Like that's like, and that's great. And it's good to have people like that in your life. It's bad to take their opinions. Uh, and, and when you're trying to decide a direction to go, because they're going to support you no matter what. And then there are other people who are the exact opposite that no matter what you do, they're going to hate it. No matter what they, you do, they're not going to support it. They're going to think it's the wrong move. And often that comes from jealousy or anger or, 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 or some, something in their life. But you shouldn't listen to that person either. What you're looking for is someone in the middle on the side of, I like this person and I want the best for them. But also I'm going to be an objective observer of their life and make judgments accordingly. And like what you need is someone who will look at you and go, I love you, but you can do better than this. Or I love you, but I want better for you. That's the kind of, that's the sweet spot of the opinion that you're looking for is that person. Yeah, I'm looking down at this, you know, those pages right now in your book and they're highlighted, marked and all that stuff. Because again, writing, you're putting yourself out there. And so I, I remember when uh, we published My Green Notebook, Know Thyself Before Changing Jobs, like back in November, like the first, you know, reviews on Amazon are all like five-star reviews. Like, this is an awesome book. It really helped me like figure out what I want out of life. Like it helped see something about myself I didn't see. And then like one guy, like no idea who it is. His name's BG. BG, if you're listening to this, you ruined my day. <laughs> BG gave the book like two stars and was like, this is terrible. It's not worth it. You know, like this doesn't teach me anything, all this stuff. And so like, for whatever reason, don't know this guy, don't know if it's even a guy, but like that particular comment of somebody who's not even in the camp of wanting to be a reflective person completely ruined my day. Like I was like, why do I even care? And it lives in your head. I mean, you know that guy's name like that. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, don't call that out, Kyle. (laughs) Yeah. And, but that's the thing. It's like, that's true. And, and, you know, if you think about it in terms of stars, yeah, you shouldn't listen to the one and two star reviews and you shouldn't really listen to the four and five star reviews. What you should listen to is like the three star reviews in your life of people who go, yeah, I like, this was good, but here's how it could have been better. Like that's the kind of stuff that, and, you know, I think I've heard Tim Ferriss talk about that, where he talks about like reading three star reviews is a good way to actually get like a, a, a pretty accurate idea of what a book is and what its strengths and weaknesses are, because it's saying like, hey, there are some strengths here, but here's where it falls short. And people who go, oh, this book is amazing. It changed my life. Like, 
that's great. And that's, you want that as an author, but that doesn't help you grow at all because they're saying you're already the best. And you're like, I know I'm not the best. <laughs> I want to get better. But somebody who goes, oh, this sucks. And there's nothing good in it. You're like, well, that doesn't help me either. You're looking for, for somewhere in the middle where you're like, I, how do I get a little bit better than I was? Or what are the deficiencies in my work? And how do I address those things? And yeah, you have to be open to that, but, but it takes a special kind of person and, and you should sort of find that person and then block out people on either side of that. Yeah, there's a another great I just throw quotes out. That's what I do on this this episode. <laughs> there's another great quote. I, I read it same time I was reading your book. It's Nassim Taleb's Fooled by Randomness. You know, he said that unless you have confidence in the ruler's reliability, if you use a ruler to measure a table, you may also be using the table to measure the ruler. Yeah. What I learned was like that particular review, because I have to go back to it because clearly I haven't let go of it yet. Uh, it told me more about that person, you know, like the people who critique us, yeah. it tells us more about them a lot of times than it does about our own abilities. Yeah. Oh, for sure, man. I mean, I, I've learned this being a person on the internet, like about a year ago, a little over a year ago, literally overnight went from having 17 followers to having a million followers on TikTok because of this stupid video that I had posted. And then that just kind of kept going. And I have 3 million followers on this platform. And that's like, that's not a number of people that... I was designed or any human was designed to have looking at your life. And what you find is that like, once you get to a certain point, people just go, oh, that's not a human being. I can say whatever I want about them. Not realizing like, dude, I see every comment that comes in. And so you do start to like, I had to learn that over time where I was talking to a journalist one time and this person had had so much hate thrown their way. And I was like, yeah, like, how do you deal with this? And she was like, I just have to block out anyone that I go, that's not a human being. Like they don't know anything about me personally. That's them throwing rocks at some version of me that they've built up. And like, I'm, I'm not obligated. Like they can do that. That's a freedom that they have. I'm not obligated to care about it or look at it or any of that stuff. And it was like having a couple other big people who had gone through that, tell me that same thing of like, Oh, you're, you don't have to listen to those people. And then I was finally like, Oh, okay. Because you feel like if you're not a sociopath, you do care about what other people think of you and you don't want anyone to hate you. But if that's your North star is like, nobody can hate me. Then you're going to just water down every part of your life until nobody is thinking about you at all. Or until people like, we'll go, Oh man, look at this guy. He fell, he fell off. He watered himself down. And you're like, Oh, there's no, there's no getting out of that. So you can't let those people live in your head. That's such great advice. Even if you're not on the internet, you know, like if you're just do, you know, at work doing regular life stuff, yeah. um, you know, we're, we're not for everybody, but you got to be true to yourself. That's like the one thing I think I've learned over my time in the military is that uh, when you start trying to please everybody, like you said, you just water yourself down so much that like you're not doing anything going back to the book reviews thing, like that can be helpful. It's like, go find a book that you love and, and that changed your life. And there will be one star reviews on that. it. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and people will be like, this book sucks or this book is overrated or whatever. And you know what? Sometimes those people have valid thoughts. Like sometimes you're like, oh, you realize later, like, oh, that book, it hit me in a particular way at a particular time in my life. But I now see what they said. Like, like that happens a lot with The Catcher in the Rye. People love The Catcher in the Rye when they're in high school. And because it feels like that book expresses what it is to be a teenager. And then, then they read it when they're like 25 or 30. And they're like, dude, this kid is whiny. Like they're like, they're like somebody needs to go give this kid a job or something. Like, and both those might be valid perspectives. But that's of a book that we've like, 
collectively decided as a culture, this is a classic. Every kid should read this book and half the people hate it, you know, later on. And so I think that realizing that, like, there's nothing in life that you can look at and all of us universally go, that's incredible. That's an amazing thing. Um, a book that really impacted my life in this arena was uh, this book called Looking for Lincoln. And it's by these this family. Uh, I think their last name is like the Kuhnhards, like K-U-N-H-A-R-D-T or something. Anyways, they're like three generations of Abraham Lincoln historians. And this book, I'd never seen anything like it. It starts with when Abraham Lincoln died. And then it goes for, I think, the next 60 years. And the book is about how our idea of Abraham Lincoln solidified into like, oh, he's the greatest president. Like, let's build, a, because you don't think about, you just think of like people universally love Abraham Lincoln, but you think like, well, he got shot in the head after a civil war. That was not the universal thought at the time. And in fact, it's crazy because this book tells the story of like when he died, it was right around Easter. And like preachers in the South were like, that guy's gone, good. And then people in the North were like, he is Jesus. Like he was our savior. And, and then over 60 years of time, we kind of collectively decided, oh, he was good. And, and so you realize like, oh, nobody gets that when they're alive. Nobody, when they're alive, has everybody that loves them. And so you can chase that if you want to, but it's a fool's errand to do it because no one's ever got. That's kind of a great way to start ramping the interview down. But it's like, you didn't know at the beginning of this project, if people were going to be like, Kyle is a great human being for building this giant Viking ship and burning it. It was just something you wanted to do. Yeah. It was something that like, you know, I'm sure not every day, but most days you woke up really excited about encountering this project. So there's a lesson in that, like whatever, everybody's got a Viking ship of some sort. They're like, they want to set on fire because it's the thing that they're going to do. And if you start worrying about all the other people, you start worrying about you know, the narrative that that's around you, then you'll never get to do that thing. Yeah. And, and so I think that's a really great lesson to, to walk away with. You know, you did this thing that I'm sure a ton of other people were like, what, what the hell is this guy doing? And uh, not only did you change a bunch of lives in the process, but you changed your own life. And then you've got a book and now like you and I are sitting here talking about it. I mean, like so many things have happened as a result of you doing the thing that you wanted to do. Yeah. And I mean, I was lucky that I had enough people that came around me and supported me through the project. I mean, there were plenty of days that I did not want to do it. I thought that this project would take a year and it took two and a half years. And and by the end of it, like the, the ship was made of three main pieces and two of the three had completely collapsed and had to re be rebuilt because of like the environment that I was building. And I mean, it was such a struggle, but over the course of that time, I didn't give up because enough people came alongside me and were like, hey, this project means a lot to me or hey, keep going. And so like, yeah, I, I definitely want to not, I, I don't want to give the idea that like, oh, I had this idea and I just pushed through. Like I took steps and then community came around and supported me. But yeah, if, I mean, it, it is wild to look back and go like, man, that was just a, a silly idea I had for a birthday party. And it led to all of this. It led to you and I talking like, I would have never, you live in North Carolina. I live in Missouri. Like I would have never met you before. We would have never had any reason or chance to interact. But because I pursued this idea and other people helped me do that, now here we are. And so, yeah, I think the message is like, one, if you have something that like you can't let go of, if there's an idea that just keeps coming up to your head, like maybe that means something. And then two, when you see that in other people, support that in them and call that out in them. 
and go like, hey, you know what? You have this thing. I think you're supposed to do this thing because you have no idea where that's going to lead. It's such profound, uh, profound wisdom. So what's, what's next for you, Kyle? Like what's the, what's the next thing that, that, that you're looking to get into? Oh man, I'm always working on new stuff. I have a couple projects I'm not allowed to talk about right now, but um, I just am always trying to make the world a little bit weirder and put new ideas out into the world and help other people kind of chase their own crazy ideas. And so, yeah, I mean, you can follow along on on TikTok or Instagram or wherever. I, I've got a few things in the works that I'm excited to announce in the next couple of months. Oh, that's that's exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing what those are. And one, I guess, final thing before before we sign off. Again, I was watching different interviews that you've done just to kind of get it A, understand how to say your last name and and <laughs> and B, just to get get a sense of who you were outside the book. And one of the things that, that struck me was that you got into public speaking and it was because like as a high school kid, you know, speakers were always always coming in and talking, right? Yeah. They were always coming in and saying, don't do this. Like, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't have sex. Don't like, and I was like not doing any of those things. And I always was like, okay, that's great. But like, that doesn't really help me figure out how to live a meaningful life. What you're saying is just like all the stuff not to do. And that's kind of like the starting line, not the finish line. And I always kind of felt like those things were a waste of time too, because the kids who were listening didn't need to hear that message. And the kids who weren't listening did need to hear it. And either they weren't listening or they were actively just kind of like joking around in the back. And so when I got into speaking, I was kind of like, man, I I just want to tell people the stuff that you can do to make an impact and how you can make the world a little bit of a better place. And so I started doing that. And it's crazy because, you know, when I started speaking, I kind of thought, man, in order to like be successful at this, I'm going to have to really discover some deep truth that no one's ever discovered before. And I'm going to have to kind of figure that out. And what I realized is actually like the opposite is that I just have to tap into the simple truths that we all know, but that often we forget. And so for the last like 10 years, I've been traveling around talking to kids about the power of one person to make a difference and telling stories about from my own life about how, Hey man, there were, this was a time in my life when I felt like nothing was going right. And I didn't even know if I wanted to be alive anymore. And then one person came in and, and it wasn't like, oh, this whole community rallied. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I won the lottery or this amazing big thing happened. It was just that one person made me f- feel like I mattered and that was enough. And then I tell other stories of like in times when one person made me feel like I didn't matter or where one person stood up for me. And, and it's so fascinating because that was like a, a message that I did one time for like a, a client just thinking like, oh, I'll do this talk one time for them because I had already done a different talk for them in the past. And at the end of this first talk that I did, people were crying and and they were like, man, that impacted me. And I was like, wow, I, I thought that was a pretty simple message. And so I think sometimes the simple truths are, are really the most powerful. And those are the things that we need to be reminded of. It's just that like, hey, you know what? Life is tough, but you have the ability every day to like make another person feel like they matter, they belong, they have a place in this world. And sometimes that's enough to keep them going. So yeah, that's what I've been doing for, for like the last 10 or 12 years now. I love that. And it really resonated with me because, you know, nine years ago when I started the blog, it was because like there was nothing out there for military leaders like on leadership. And so I was like, well, I'll just create something, you know? And so it's this idea of, you know, I'm sure in everybody's life, they had that one thing they wish they had when they were at a certain point of their life and they just go do it. And then it, it works out like in your case of, yeah. of being the high school speaker that you wanted when you were in high school. Yeah. My friend Brad has a talk that he gives and 
there's an image from that talk that's gone viral a million times and it's his, him standing on a stage and behind him on the screen, it says, be who you needed when you were younger. Oh, wow. And I think that, man, if you can just follow that, that'll take you pretty far in life. You know, one of the things that I say in my talk is that the job of an adult is to make the road a little bit smoother for the people coming behind you than it was for you. That's going to be unique to each person because the road like that was rough for me might've been a thing that for you wasn't that hard and vice versa. So you smooth out the parts that were tough for you. I'll smooth out the parts that were tough for me and kind of together. That's how the world gets better is that each of us go like, Hey, I'll clean up my little corner, you know? And, and so, so often we think of leadership as this like top down thing of like, Oh, the CEO or the president or the leader, like they make this decree and then everyone just falls in line. But actually, it's usually the opposite. Like positional leadership is the lowest form of leadership because if someone's only listening to you because they have to, it doesn't really say a lot about you. But if, if you're like, hey, you know what? I'm going to do my part here. I'll take care of my area and you take care of yours. If we all do that, then everything gets a lot better. That's awesome, Kyle. I, I appreciate your time today, man. And then for listeners, like if you've made it this far in the podcast, just listen to the the bonus track question. Um, <laughs> the book, How to Host a Viking Funeral... It's really profound. I think you got you that came across in today's episode, but it's also hilarious. Like I was laughing the entire book and I don't know how much laughter came out today because Kyle and I got deep. So I highly recommend you purchase the book. It's amazing. And thanks you so much, Kyle, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud.